the next chapter starts back on the beaches of Salamandastron. The wounded Farago feigns sleep. He knows he's a target now. He's hurt, and that encourages the rebellious to take their shot. Sure enough, he sees signs of someone sneaking up. So he pulls a mean trick, calling Sikir, who'd nursed him all day, and playing at gratitude, saying he's going to go check on his son and that the rat should settle down where he'd been. It's a nice rock for sleeping. He even covers the rat with his cloak, slipping away as the now oblivious rat drops into a good sleep. And like, this sequence actively really upset me because yeah, it's so... it is needlessly cruel. Mm-hmm. And like, because like, Sikir was loyal. He did a good job. But the thing is, this is totally in character for Farago. He cares about no one but himself. And the one exception in a very sad and twisted way is Klitsch. Yeah. That's it. And I was just very upset by this because his trick works. Forgrin and Raptail kill Sick Ear. They didn't realize they'd been doomed. Graphically. And yeah, like they like stab him and then like beat him over the head. It's fairly brutal. Like uh, f- um Raptail had had sharpened his blade uh so that it was like wicked sharp foregrin had put like a sharp metal uh pin through like a wooden club and they stab uh sick ear and then slam the club into his skull yeah like sick ear dead dead yeah it's very dead oof and then, like, Farago just goes, like, yeah, it would have worked if that had been me. And they're just like, oh! And, like, Raptail just kills him easily. Farago Forgrin... kills Raptail. Sorry. Farago kills Raptail easily. Forgrin can't speak. He's just too terrified, so he tries to run for it. But he can't escape the assassin's throne blade. Back to feeling much better, Farago strolls along the shore in a cheerful mood. And it's just like, this guy is straight up a serial killer, yep. isn't he? Yep, just yeah. the fucking serial killer. Yeah. On the crater of the mountain, Earthstripe and Oxeye watch what seems to be a torchlight retreat of the vermin. Earthstripe is pondering why Farago wants them to think he's retreating. What new trick is this? Because, like, he knows Farago's not just going to leave like this. Yeah. There's no way he's just going to pack up and move out. So he's like, all right, I need to figure <laughs> out what... Bless you. Did that get picked <laughs> <Yes>. up? <laughs> that was Moody sneezing. Like, he's trying to figure out... He's trying to think like Farago, yeah. which is so hard for him, but I admire that he is trying. Um. He orders Oxeye to take Sapwood and a fleet young hare to go scout. Oxeye says they'll take Pennybright. None are quicker than her. And I make the comment of like, so is being a young hare in this novel the equivalent of being a red shirt? And I responded with that or being the old mentor, which in yeah, this which book, <laughs> actually being the old mentor is more like the red shirt vibe. Yeah. Because uh, spoiler <laughs> alert, Pennybright survives. Yeah, but she is fairly traumatized by the ordeal. Yeah, poor thing. Um, Yeah. Klitsch waits. He's going for another hostage-taking tactic. 
He knows Earthstripe will send out hares to investigate, and he plans to capture them. He's had nets laid out under the sand. Spotting the three who were sent out, he orders his horde to silence. And I find this super interesting that consistently, consistently Klitsch is the one who wants to take hostages. He knows the value of emotional and sentimental connection. He knows these hairs have value to Earthstripe. And he's able to understand, like, the fact that he's able to comprehend this and understand it at all is amazing, considering how he was raised, who he was raised by, and the kind of life he has led up until now. The fact that he can even comprehend these kind of emotional connections is amazing. And what makes it even sadder is that the only way he knows how to use this knowledge is as a weapon. Yep. My heart aches for Klitsch. Yeah. He's my poor little meow meow. Yeah. Absolutely irredeemable. But, man, he's <laughs> just a poor little meow meow. Not a blorbo. This is a poor little meow meow. <laughs> no, this is not a blorbo. This is close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, y'all, if you're heading back to Tumblr, you're going to have to learn this vernacular sooner or later. <laughs> I'm not going to stop using it. Nope, never. Um, we quick live enough. for the cringe. That's why we're here. You can't stop us. Can't stop us now. <laughs> can't stop because I'm having a good time. A good having time, a good having time. a good time. <laughs> and the three hairs are not having a good nope. time. Because quick enough, the three are surrounded by Klitsch's horde. Pennybright is worried, but Bob... Box eye? But Box eye. <laughs> but Ox eye does his best to keep her spirits up. Klitsch and Ox eye share some banter until Klitsch sees his men have found the ends of the ropes. He gives the order and they charge, hauling up the huge net as they go. Sapwood orders Ox eye to get Pennybright out. And he does. Like in a Herculean moment, he picks her up and hurls her over the horde with all his might, telling her to run for home. And the two are quickly clubbed senseless after that. She like, fucking this is, yeets I, this girl and she fucking yeah. books it. Yeah. Penny Bright gets a notch in her ear from an arrow, but she's rescued and makes it back into the mountain. Klitsch takes a pot shot at Earthstripe, literally and figuratively, who'd come out to help him with the rescue. Missing physically but scoring verbally, telling Earthstripe to watch the shore tomorrow, see what they'll do to his pet bunnies. Pennybright is given water and comforted. Like this girl's traumatized. Poor Pennybright. Farago accosts his son while Klitsch hammers stakes into the sand, saying his plan failed. Forgrin and Raptail are dead. Klitsch says that's fine. He knew nothing of their plans, and if he'd wanted to kill his father, he would be dead. Then he demands he get out of his way. He's got work to do. And this is another scene that makes me feel, like, really bad for Klitsch, but also in a weird way for Rago. Because, mm -hmm. like, Klitsch wants to be better than his dad. He wants to prove he's smarter and stronger. And Farago wants to make him strong. He wants his son to succeed. He wants him to become better than he was as far as like what he considers success. 
Each of them wants the other's attention and they hate the fact that they want it at the same time. Yeah. Like, I don't know if this is just me reading more into it than is actually there, but this, this is whole what we're scene, here for. This is what we're here for. This whole scene just made my heart ache. Like so many other changes in life. So many what ifs. This dysfunctional family of two. Mm-hmm. The tail end of this chapter sees Oxai waking up and grumbling about how he'd love to have Klitsch alone, the little brat. Sapwood admits they fell right into that trap and wonder what awaits them tomorrow. A ferret guard mocks them, and the chapter ends. He's like, you, you won't have to worry until tomorrow, you know, but once you do. Okay, we're gonna stop for a second. And okay. this is a warning to everybody going forward. Yes. This is where the illness is and the death related to the illness. Okay, we're going back to the Abbey and it ends on a high note. But this chapter is heavy, like extremely heavy and very yes. rough. Hey guys, this is Kit in editing. Uh, if you want to skip past the illness talk and the talk of death by illness, uh, skip to the 16 minute and 30 second mark. We go back to the uh, happier ending and the regular conversations from there. Thank you. We open chapter 33 at the tolling of the Joseph Bell. The spinnies sit near each other, crying softly. The mole Burley has died. Tud laments losing his drinking partner and Faith wonders what ill the Abbey had done to have such misfortunes visit upon them. She orders Tud to go nap in his chair. He's still too weak to be out and about, but he says he'll go sit in the cellar as a spell. It's the place he spent the most time with Burley. On their way into the Abbey, they came across Formal and his crew carrying Burley wrapped in a shroud. He tells them they'll have him buried at late noontide. And would the Spinneys tell everyone? Tud tearfully agrees to do so. I legitimately did not expect anybody to actually die from the illness in this book. Not anyone, not anyone named no, anyway. not anybody named, but it's... It is a lot uh, reading this. And then, like, it just keeps keeps going um and it's given the proper like brian writes this with like the writing is somber the writing has the room to mm -hmm. breathe with a lot of this in a way that it's not super fast paced it's not ill-timed it's given room to exist and shown like hey bad things happen death happens yeah. and you can't control it and in a kid's book that's something that's really important to show yeah it's heavy it's harsh but a lot of kids books either gloss over it or make it into some massive thing that's very yeah. unrealistic and yeah. this is realistic in a way that is uncomfortable yeah okay the infirmary is packed end to end. Hollyberry is in a dead faint, almost literally dead, and Thruggan, Vale, and Fergal are doing their best to keep the rest from a panic. 
No one else knows how to mix the medicine that's keeping them alive. If Hollyberry goes, they'll lose many more creatures other than Burley. The abbess is overwhelmed and passes out in a solid faint as well. Bruggen scoops her up and, with a shared somber whisper with Fergal, takes her to the only empty bed, the recently emptied bed of Burley. Just, whew. Yeah. This, this is the darkest part of the narrative. Like, I don't care that, like, we still have the battle ahead and the hares are in trouble, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, yeah, it's heavy. Um, it is extremely heavy. Like, this section in our notes is very short because this is a, just within the span of a chapter. But mm-hmm. reading it, it felt longer. It's hard, yeah. Yeah, we still have more to go with this unfortunately um but like we said it does end on a high note yeah but this is something that especially over the past like three years mm-hmm. has been things that have been happening and are still happening right and it is uncomfortable yeah they lay her in the silent dormitory all the creatures in it suffering from similar deep faints all except for Blossom the Mousemaid, shaking her sister and weeping. Fergal appears, stuttering that the medicine has just run out. And not only that, Bremen had died. He'd simply said he was tired and died. And I was shocked that he was given an off-screen death like this. Yeah. With as important of a character as he was played to be. He's just given a, a quiet... Well, little soft end. It. This is one of those like this is a testament to Brian's writing, with how the way that I reacted to this was so real because like reading mm-hmm. that made my throat tighten and my breath hitch, mm-hmm. like I was gonna start crying because it was just so unexpected. Yeah. Because he had been fighting so hard, he had been speaking in one of the previous scenes. They had just been speaking to him, and he dies, and this happens, and it sucks. It's This is a heavy section, and it's going to, particularly with Bremen, when um, Sam Kim gets back, because Bremen... It was the one who was the most critical of him. Mm-hmm. And he Just... wanna prove to Bremen that like no, he's do he can do better, he can be a better person, and now he mm-hmm. won't be able to. Yeah. And that's going to be a hard thing to read later. Depending on how it's written. We're almost out of it. Yep. Faith is at a loss. That leaves three healthy beasts and one just recovering to tend the entire sick abbey. And to make things worse, Thruggan starts to show signs of the fever, saying she only needs fresh air and to open a window. And as they do that, they hear a great cry of, Redwall! They think they're seeing things at first, having seen Dumbledore shooting by in the haversack. 
carried by the biggest bird in the world. When they confirmed they did indeed see what they thought they saw, they charged down the stairs, determined to save Dumble from the great bird, one way or another. Macpherson sits down on the lawn, complimenting Dumble's fine nest. The little dormouse tumbles out of the sack, covered in flowers. He corrects him that it's not a nest, it's a hattie. And then we have a very abrupt cut to Mara, listen, to Mara listening to the story of her adopted great-grandmother, how Earthwhite and Earthstripe's father had been Lord of the South. The twins had been less than a year old when that winter Lombud was tricked by her son into leaving their home so he could talk to Farrago. If she'd been there, she'd have fought the assassin. She returned instead to find them dead and only little Earthwhite in the shattered home. She had no idea what happened to her other grandson until Mara arrived. Incredibly sad. Like, literally a nightmare scenario. Like, we hear, also, we hear this bit coming off of the last chapter. It's like, (laughs) thanks, Brian. It's just like, why why would he try to talk to Farago? Because, like, the way the badgers usually are, they won't give vermin the time of day. It feels weirdly out of character. It, well, but remember, Farago is all smiles and things like that. Like, he is... Yeah. He talks. And so maybe, yeah. uh, like... Maybe, like, their, their father thought that he could talk to Farago, and if not, he could kill him. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things, because the, the, we see multiple times, like, uh, like forest creatures and, like, quote-unquote non-vermin trying to talk things out and work out, like, compromises with the vermin and the vermin just flat-out refusing, which I think is stupid, but... Yeah. It, I mean, it is because of the way Brian depicts them in these stories. There is no honor. Like, there's nothing to negotiate. But that, that's the benefit of us being readers. We can sit outside the story and see these things. Yeah. Like, we had earlier, literally at the beginning of this book, we had two vermin sitting in the abbey having a fine time. They, they made a mistake, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it cost them, but they were willing. And Brian just immediately was like, no, I'm going to shit all over that actually fuck that shit yeah he's, he's just it's frustrating oh, very it, it's a weird characterization and it feels like it it just it it feels like it doesn't work yeah and so like you get stuff like this where you have like a badger wanting to talk to a vermin to try and work things out and Based on everything you know from past books, it's not going to work. And even if, like, there's the implication of maybe it might, Mm -hmm. it won't. And it just is frustrating. Yeah. So anyway, Earthwhite was mostly gentle, but became fierce when the need arose. He'd been raised on the story of his parents' betrayal and death in the hopes he could get revenge someday. That's fucked up. By the way, yeah. that is traumatizing She's... and fucked up. Like, no wonder he gets so <laughs> angry when Farago's name comes up. Yeah. Lone Bud had fled with the little cub, wandering until she found Ashnin, slave to wandering foxes. 
Once freed, Ashnin joined them. The trio looked for a home and found it on the island. Carmen's like, how did they get here? <laughs> a boat? Um, yeah, but where'd they get the boat? The... Don't you boof while I'm recording, madam. They stole it from the fox. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Maybe. Don't, don't boof while I'm recording, madam. Boof. Let's see. Mara asks, why doesn't Lonebud stay and forget the past? And Lonebud tells her it's because Mara has brought the past in with her. She'll be going with her to save her other grandson the day after tomorrow. When asked why the delay, she says a storm is brewing, one so great nothing could survive on the lake. They'd better go warn their shrew friends and take Earthwhite to haul the boats up for them. And then I very snarkily said, well, you see, we have to meet up with the B plot, and then the B and C plot can catch up to the A plot, since the D plot has already settled itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ashnan says to bring the shrews to the cave home as well. Might as well see what beasts she'll be traveling with. When asked by a surprised pickle that she'll be coming too, she preps a little bow. She's a fighting beast as well, and a dead shot. Pickle can't help but confirm that, still feeling where she'd hit him with the cherry stones. I love this. Back with the shrews. Earthwake causes a moment of panic. Pickle continues his trend of being rude about others' names. And Mara hops down to pass over the Blackstone. Earthwake just, like, pokes his head over the cliff to, like, look down at the shrews. And the shrews are like, oh my god! Yeah. It's a ghost, and it's just like... It's a ghost! Nah, it's a badger, it's fine. Yeah, it's a badger. Um, and, like, I understand struggling to remember people's names. Like, I legitimately struggle to remember people's names. It is a problem for me. It has been since childhood. But I make an effort to be polite, and even if I can't remember the names... I do my best to be polite until I can get a hint or a chance to, like, get the name that I need. Literally all and of the Badgers' names, except for Lonebud, start with Earth. You just have to remember the second half. Like, he's literally just being lazy and disrespectful. It's, it's, I put, push Pickle into the lake, 2K22. <laughs> <laughs> Mara puts the black stone around Logalog's neck, and his shrews chant his name, each one passing by to touch the stone. He clasps Mara's paws and once more swears his gratitude. Nordo does the same. They're hers to command. She says they can pay her back by helping her face Farago's hoard when the time comes. The shrews are awed by Earthwhite, watching him pick up a log boat all by himself. Like he scoops Nordo... it and deposits yeah. it on the little, like, uh... Like essentially sawhorses that they've set up so they can do repairs. Yeah. And it's just fucking just Jesus. Badgers are scary in these books. Big scary. Yeah. Um, Nordo praises him in an awestruck voice, causing him to puff up with pride. Until his pride is deflated by Lonebud calling him back to Earth with how he's only used some of his strength. And now he never stops needing to eat. It's like, all right, that's the fourth bottomless pit in this book. Pickle watches Logalog repair the boat, eating the whole time. Speaking of bottomless pits, once it's done, he compliments the shrew leader. 
With an impish mood, Logalog goes after Pickle with the same pine tar he'd used to seal the boat, pretending his aim was to seal the hare's mouth. Get him, Logalog! Get him! Get him! Get his ass! Get his ass! It gives the crew a good laugh, and Ashton cheers on Logalog. She knew the hare ate more than her adopted son! And, like, the chapter, like, it starts, this is, like, a dark chapter, but then it ends on, like, a light note. Yeah. Like that. Which seems to be a trend with these next, yeah. like, these past couple of chapters where it's been, like, darker and then ends on a lighter note. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of similar to the next chapter. Uh-huh. Because we open on the storm-struck lake. Sam Kim is losing the fight with Deathbrush. His agility is keeping him alive. But Deathbrush's experience shows, as well as the superiority of his strength and the quality of Martin's sword. He corners Samkim, snapping the shrew blade off at the hilt. The three other boats move in. Because they see he's in trouble and Arula's like, hey, 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 move in, please. We need to save my friend. Gotta help Samkim. Samkim saves himself, first with a swift kick to Deathbrush's gut, then a sharp punch under his jaw, like... He's holding the handle of the bl- the shrew rapier still. Mm-hmm. So, like, it adds to the force. The, probably the only reason he doesn't break his fucking knuckles. Right. It sends the fox teetering overboard, still holding the sword. Just then, Deep Coiler arrives, snapping the fox around the middle. The sword is dropped, and Sam Kim leaps in after it without thinking. And a little part of me is just like, does Deep Coiler just hang out here because it knows this is where the shrews like to come out? Probably. <laughs> and it probably, like, felt all the disturbances in the water and stuff and was just like, mm-hmm. oh, there's food over here. Let me, oh, one mm-hmm. just fell in. Hum. Yeah. A panicked Arula smacks the Deep Coiler hard, hitting it in the eye and making it retreat. It's and described as a par- reptile. And it's just like, <sighs> it's the fucking uh, uh, Casey Green comic panel from one of his older comics it's just like i guess yeah (laughs) i guess i guess fucking spriggit spriggit and alpha managed to pull sam kim back into the boat and he's like just a clinging to the sword and i i can only imagine that scene from like cinderella where gus gus is holding on to something and they're like gus 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 let go and he's going no 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 The next moment, everything is hurled into the lake when the deep coiler surges to the surface. It goes on a killing rampage, snapping up creatures right and left. Arula hauls Sam Kim onto an overturned boat, and he keeps a grim grip on the sword. Spriggit gets bitten badly, but Sam Kim diverts the deep coiler's attention by slashing its neck. It turns on him, and he dives into its mouth, sword up to stab the roof of its mouth. He's pulled out just as the jaws snap shut and the beast slips into the lake. He's frenzied, fighting his friends and calling them names to try and get into the water and rescue the sword. Arula solves the problem by knocking him out with the paddle. She's just like, you're being crazy, smack. Right. And like, I I do actually like how Brian wrote this. Like, the main takeaway is like, Sam Kim is too obsessed with the sword this is him having, like, a humbling moment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like, he can't have the sword yet because plot. 
but it's still like showing him be this obsessed, this laser focused on the sword. It's not healthy. No. He's putting too much of a belief in the sword's majesty. We have to remember, the sword is not magic. Nope. He wakes up to a windy night in the bottom of a longboat, his head throbbing and a slightly crossed alpho tending to the bump. Sam Kim asks what happened, and he's grilled by Alpho, then teased by Arula for the rude things he'd said and how wild he'd been. He says he'd wanted to rescue Martin's sword. That's what made him wild. And it's like, again, this this obsession, this is not Martin. This is not no. Martin driving him on. This is all Sam Kim, because Martin wouldn't put his wielder at risk like this. Because, like, remember, in Redwall, he warns Matthias. He tells him to not, you know, not go rushing ahead. The snake was too much for him alone. Yeah. And a well, lot of... Also, I think a lot of Sam Kim's obsession with it is because, like I was saying before, getting the sword back is proof that he can be trusted. It's proof yeah. that, you know all of this wasn't his fault and he even if it was this makes up for it he has to bring the sword back to make up for what happened and yeah. so like that is what is pushing him on and it's not healthy <laughs> no very much not and it's extremely sad but that's part of what the obsession is yep a ruler forgives him taking over the tending we learn Spriggett is wounded, but we don't know how badly. They're all in a bad way. All the supplies gone, six shrews killed, and all the rats. Martin just like, nicely pirouetting around another moral dilemma. And now the wind is blowing them onward, and there's no fighting against it. All they can do is hunker down and try to rest. Because like, they're like, there's, there's no way we can fight this wind. It's too strong. We just have to let it take us where mm -hmm. it's going to take us and then mm -hmm. do our best. Sam Kim is first up the next morning, and he enjoys the moment of peace in the soft summer morning sun. Because like the storm is gone, and like the morning is just this picturesque, quiet summer dawn. He sips some of the lake water and hears Spriggett request to have some as well. He carefully moves between the boats to cradle his friend's head and give him the requested water. Spriggett knows he's not long for the world and apologizes to Sam Kim. He, wish he, he wishes he could have gone on dry land, but having a good friend by him isn't a bad way to go. The others awaken to Sam Kim sobbing as he cradles Spriggett, saying that the hedgehog had said he was going to summer forests full of wasps and flying insects, then died. He's joined by Alpha and Arula, who help him hold the loyal old hedgehog's body. And I am surprised that Brian killed him off like this. Just Same. very abruptly. And part of me thinks that it, it, it's an odd way to like, it's not even upping the stakes. Like, I feel like Brian just wanted Spriggett out of the scene because he already had so many characters to write. And like, Spriggett wasn't needed for the plot anymore. He did his job, so he didn't need him anymore. Brian, get on J.R.R. Tolkien's level with writing a vast amount of characters into a scene. 
<laughs> and also you make the joke about Spriggett being a red shirt and no, I would not qualify him as a, a red shirt, like discount mentor figure because he shows up like in the middle of the book and then dies at the not even full end of the book. And I make a joke about like, for like, as far as it goes for on screen time, though, I think he does kind of get more characterization than Obi-Wan <laughs> does in the original Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> God. It's like, don't get, it's like, I love the original Obi-Wan, but we don't get a lot of Obi-Wan in the original movie. <laughs> He's like, hello. Not. He's like, hello, I am here. I'm old. I'm wise. Oh no, I'm dead. Goodbye. <laughs> And that is the end of that chapter. Once again, we start a chapter at Salamandistron. Klitsch and Farago start the next part of their plan. They set up a feast in full view of the mountain. When they spot Earthstripe, they mock him for what they assume is his lack of food. He threatens to shoot his longbow, but Klitsch leaps up in defiance, saying that if he does, they'll kill two of his creatures. It's then he sees Oxeye and Sapwood tied out below the high tide mark. He asks, the, he asks, what does the weasel want? And gets another mocking reply from Farago. Farago says that they didn't want anything in particular. It's just more entertaining this way. Confused and angry, Earthstripe asks again, what does the weasel want? Farago says he at first wanted the treasure, but now he wants the mountain too. Earthstripe denies the presence of treasure, and also that Farago would ever be master of Salamandistron. It will never happen. Klitsch snickers. Oh, they hear him bellowing, but soon he'll be hearing his two hairs begging for mercy. Then they'll see what he says. And like... Said captives like, are already parched. Oh, go ahead. The way that Klitsch, like, defies Earthstripe is he, like, pulls open his, like, shirt. And, like, basically bears his chest for Earthstripe to shoot him. And I'm just like, that was fucking ballsy. Because mm -hmm. before you managed to finish your sentence, he could have just shot you. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is, they're definitely banking very hard on <laughs> Earthstripe. Like caring for his hairs and like they're not wrong in this assumption but they yeah. are wrong in how the hairs are gonna react yeah. to it yeah so said captives are already parched it doesn't stop their spirits from being strong and somehow like this is more heartbreaking to me like they've just accepted what's gonna happen to them to an extent like they're not gonna give up but they're not afraid they trust Salamanus they trust Earthstrike, and they trust in what they did. It's it's they very big if we die, we die kind of vibes, but yeah. not that nihilistic way that, like, very, like, like if we die, we die, and that's what happens, and it's not gonna yeah. stop what's going on here. Yeah. We have to be prepared for that inevitability and, you know, do as much damage as we can before it happens. Mm -hmm. They can't see the parlay going on. And when told to be silent by the rat guarding them, Oxeye sasses him. He knows the rat can't kill him. Klitsch had skinned the rat alive. And Klitsch himself comes up to loom over them. And Oxeye asks if he'll do that. If the rat kills him, could he be so kind as to kill the rat back? 
Klitsch says they shouldn't be so cheerful. They've been left to die. Earthstripe has until dawn tomorrow, but by then it'll be too late for the two. Tides will have come and gone, leaving the food, leaving them food for the gulls. They joke that it'd be a fine, useful thing, feeding the birds. Tuppence bag. When Sapwood mocks Klitsch, the young weasel slaps him across the face. And the boxing hare says he's got a weak right. Better try with the left. God, I love them. I do. The hares have problems, but this kind of shit is what makes me love the hares. Yeah, it's like, in this book, I like a majority of the hares. The only one I really want to punt into the lake is Pickle. <laughs> Bart is obnoxious, but that's just because of he's set up to be obnoxious. Yeah, it's it's the hoity-toity obnoxiousness, yeah. which is like the, the, the well-bred rich person, which is more tolerable to me than like, I'm the cheeky little food stealer kind. Yeah. <laughs> At the lip of the crater... Bart Thistledown comforts Pennybright, saying the two on the beach were doing fine and Earthstripe would rescue them. No doubt. <laughs> Speak of the badger, he comes up to order Bart to join a select crew and Earthstripe himself for a night rescue. And he tells him to like to be there an hour after sunset. I'm like, how do you tell time? An hour after sunset, you live in a mountain. Sundial? Yes, let's just climb up to the crater every time we need to check the time. <laughs> they live in a mountain, Izzy. <laughs> he orders Penny Bright no, to see, stay the in the mountains. Ma- they just have to look out a window. Oh my god. Wherever the he shadow order- is falling, I'm you know. Fight you. <laughs> he orders Penny Bright to stay in the mountain as a guard. She pouts, causing Brent Brent. Brent. She pouts, causing Bart to promise to slay a few rats for her. Or just vermin in general. The noon tide provides a surprising boon for the two staked out. The twisted grass fiber ropes are made soft by the water, and the guards have moved up the beach to avoid getting wet themselves. So the two work to get their paws free. And Oxi comes up with a good plan. Once they are free, grab... A big chunk of driftwood, make for the sea, and then float a ways off until they can sneak back to the mountain. And it's like, I like this. Here we have a big guy who is also smart. Yeah, Oxai is very smart. Sapwood sees a bit of a problem with the plan. Oxai seems to imply it'll only be him on the driftwood. Him being Sapwood. Yes. And Oxai says, yes, of course. He's got to distract the guards. He'll join Sapwood after a few good vermin knockouts. For now, they should try to get weapons, so they lure the guards over. They yell about a fish nibbling at them and get the two guards over. Sapwood lays one out, but Oxai struggles to stand and the other gets away. Like, he's he's big enough that he's, like, squished into the sand now and, like, sitting up is actively hard. Like, when sand gets a hold of you and it's, like, wet yeah, like that. Yeah, it's just gonna Yeah. Yeah. Sap, let's see, they try to haul the log out to the water but it's big driftwood, still covered in branches that trip them up. Sapwood doesn't want to leave Oxai, but the bigger hare stuns him and shoves him out to sea. And it's just like, here we go with the hares and their heroic sacrificing! Yep! That's just what they do! Oxai makes a stand. He takes down one weasel, challenging the rest of the horde, and launches himself forward for one more good fight. Sapwood, meanwhile, drifts outward to sea. And it's like, oh, so what's 
probably going to happen now is he's going to meet up with the shrew boats. Is my prediction. Possibly. Um, it depends. Yeah. It depends. There's a lot of things that could happen. There are so many moving um, parts. Yeah. That's the end of that chapter. And the next opens in the Abbey. Dumble telling an exaggerated tale of his flight to Redwall to his friend, Druni. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, the eagle was scared, but I told him, don't worry. And Druni's like, whoa. <laughs> do, do you actually want me to read that part out? If you I can, can if you want to. I think we're getting to the point where we're both kind of, like, tired. We're, we are getting tired, but we're, we're very close to being done. We are very close. This is the last chapter. It's also short, too. Drumble sat on the edge of little Druni's bed. The mole listened wide-eyed as the baby Dormouse described his flight in great fictitious detail. With you! Right up in the sky we was! And a heagle was frightened. But Dumble wasn't. Me laughed, ha-ha, like that. Hollyberry so <laughs> wakes up, asking who was laughing. He'd been having such a nice sleep. It nearly makes Thruggan drop a beaker of Isotor water. And Fergal explains about wonderful old mousewife tales. You know, when before he was like, ugh, it's just a mousewife tale. And he was told mm -hmm. to respect those. And now he's uh -huh. just like, oh my god, they're great. I am never disbelieving these <laughs> ever again. Miss Faith comes up, carrying fresh hazelnut scones with buttercream and chestnuts on top. She asks Friar Bellows if he's ready to get back to work. And when he nearly swipes a scone, she scolds him to go bake some of his own. These are for the great bird, of which she's terrified of. So she asks Dumble to pass them on to said great bird. It causes little giggles as he and Druni give McPherson the treats. He's never had anything like it and enjoys it greatly, even asking for more vegetable pasties. Druni ponders over his odd accent. <laughs> Just like, it's, could you imagine reading this segment out to kids? Oh my god, it's so good. It's I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. Abbas Vale and the two mouse maids, Turzel and Blossom, watched chuckling from the dormitory window as Dumble and Druni fed the wild King MacPherson on scones. Mrs. Spinney says, "Don't eat too much. You get Heagle's tummy ache." You're Dumble. <laughs> Let I give Heagle a scone. Burr, here you, here you are, sir. MacPherson had never tasted such food in all his wild life among the icy crags. He picked the scones from the infant's paws delicately with his savagely curved beak and wolfed them down, showering the two little heads below with crumbs. Ugh, these vittles are bra eaten, Dumble. How you not admire those wee vegetable pasties the good-edged pig lady made? Drini squinched his eyes until they nearly disappeared into his small velvety face. Bar, you and Eagle do be a-talking a funny-like. I can't understand a word he'd be saying, Dumble. Which, that's just fucking hilarious to me. Like, it's uh -huh. one thing when people who quote-unquote talk normally make fun of the mole's accents, but when you've got two people with very heavy accents making the joke, it's not as bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. Um... <laughs> That evening, they put together a feast from whatever they could cobble together for Dumble and McPherson. The great bird tries to stay dignified, but it's hard when there's such good food at his talons. So Dumble helps by translating. Helps. <laughs> of course he's fibbing. McPherson compliments him, and Dumble says he meant Dumble should get more plum cake. And 
This reminds me of a gag in one of the Wizard of Oz books where, you know, the Scarecrow becomes the king of Oz or, or not Oz, but the Emerald City for a while. And there's a sequence where uh, he meets another character who's technically not from Oz. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait, I can't talk to you. You're not from Oz. So clearly you don't speak like my language. And he's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. So the Scarecrow's like, well, I'll get us an interpreter so she can interpret for us. And then the girl just like completely lies back and forth. And Scarecrow's like, you know what? No, I can understand what you say after all. You're fired, ma'am. Go back to the kitchen uh, or something like that. Like she's a cleaning girl or something along those lines. So he's just like, okay, no. But the gag is, is that the two can understand each other clearly. He just wanted to add the third step for some reason. <laughs> it's yeah. a delightful little <laughs> gag. I love the writing in the Oz books. That's very um, good. Those are good books to, books to read out loud. Very good. So... They roll out some good drinks, and the feast carries on. They give wine to a bird. There's a lot of things this bird is eating that he shouldn't be eating, okay? I've just given up at this point. <laughs> he is also huge. How did they get him inside the abbey? No, they're not out. They're not in the abbey. They're out, like, in the orchard. Oh, they are outside still? Yes. Okay, good. I yes. thought they were in the Great Hall for some reason, and was just like, how did they get him inside? He's so big. Thrug, Thrug meanwhile, has started the long walk back home guarded by Rock Angus and three other falcons. Although, like, Rock Angus is, like, implied to, like, be riding with Frug again, but still. His father tells him to behave, and Rock Angus says he's a good sort of dad, just overprotective. Thrug ponders if they should go bully the crows a bit on their way home, and Rock Angus likes the idea. And I'm like, do not. But fun. Leave them alone. But fun. <laughs> At the lake island, the shrews prep to drop their boats again. Suddenly, one gives out a shriek. The deep coiler is at the shore. It doesn't take long to see it's dead, though, and Mara spots part of the sword poking out of its head. They pull the sword loose. It's assumed the creature killed itself by accident. Someone stabbed it, and when it went to close its mouth, it forced the sword clean through its own skull. It's like, Brian! I knew that was what was going to happen. That was what Sam Kim was trying to do. I know it too, but it's just like, huh. <laughs> Mara wonders who the blade belongs to. It's too small for a badger, but too big for a shrew. And Earthwhite can tell her that it's a badger make, at least. He's heard of such blades. Pickle tests it with the hair, whistling as it's cut in two by the blade and saying thanks to whoever the warrior had been. Now it was safe to sail in the lake. This galvanizes the shrews who get the boats out into the water. Once more, they strike up a song as they launch towards their, their goal. Do you want to read the song or no? I want to read the song. I just have to get to it. Okay. Eh. I had to turn the We're pages. almost there. We're almost there. We're so close. We're so close. And then I'm going to go have dinner. From lake to the river and down to the sea, paddling, paddling, onward go we. The sun on the water does shine merrily, as away go the log boats like birds wild and free. So paddle, my brother, I'll sit next to you, a fine handsome creature, a bold gooesome shrew. High sky and deep water are both colored blue, our boats like our friends are all solid and true. Which that's not like a rowing song, that's not a shanty, that is just a yeah. short song that has some very good rhyme. Simple, Very. but good rhyme. Uh, and it, it's just, I fucking love the shrews so much. 
I don't think I used to like the Shrews that much when I was younger, (laughs) and now I'm like, god damn, I fucking love these guys. I know I'm still fairly neutral towards them, but I really enjoy how they're written in this book. Uh, Absolutely. Mara can see everyone admiring the blade, and as she gives it a long, hard look over, she gets a bit dizzy until she starts, asking Pickle if he can see anything in the blade. She swears she saw a warrior mouse looking back at her from the sword. And it's like, ah, yes. Martin being like, I like this one. (laughs) This is a a fine badger woman. Yes. Pickle teases her a bit, asking if she'd eaten anything funny. She says no, and Logalog confidently tells her that she must have seen the reflection of one of the shrews on the boat, warped by the angle of the blade. When she looks at the only shrew in the reflections, like, in reflecting distance, she knows that's not true, though. He looks nothing like the warrior who looked back at her. Like, he's just the old grizzled shrew. He's got, like, one eye, eye, a long beard. Just, he looks nothing like Martin. Yeah. The journey goes smoothly until after a meal, Earthwhite stands to stretch stretch his stiff shoulders. He spots shapes in the water, and the spooked crew goes silent. Fearing another deep coiler could be in the lake. like Which there could be. There could be. I mean, they don't know. In theory, yes, there should be. Because, like, whatever this thing is, it would have had to have had, like, parents at some point. Anyway. um, Mara asks Pickle to stand on her shoulders to take a look. What do you see with your special eyes? He sees a log, a log, a log, a log, a log, a log, a log. He needs them to get closer. So his boat does, leaving the other behind. He hears them though before really seeing what they are telling Logalog they're calling his name and that gets Logalog moving, calling the other two boats to aid in the rescue immediately. There's a joyful reunion amongst the shrews once they get there. Sam Kim however is awestruck by Mara and how she holds Martin's sword. He steps up to her and introduces himself and she does the same. He speaks, not knowing why, only feeling like he was back home, staring at the tapestry, telling her the sword belonged to Martin of Redwall, and that it was Martin she'd seen in the blade. He covers his mouth, embarrassed by his odd words. And this is another scene where Brian really pulls out his writing skills. I'm gonna read it. Do. Backslapping and paw-shaking went on apace as the shrews were reunited with old friends from the Great South Stream. Sam Kim was lost for words. He could only stand and stare at the handsomely marked young young female badger holding the sword of Martin the Warrior in her paws. Stepping over the side of the boat, he never once took his eyes from hers as he spoke. I am Sam Kim of Redwall Abbey. I am Mara of Salamandastron. They stood staring at one another until Sam Kim found himself speaking again. This time the words sprang unbidden to his lips. He felt as though he was back in Redwall, standing before the tapestry picture. Images golden with motes of the dust of time floated through his mind like brown leaves drifting over an autumn evening meadow. Thrug the otter dressed as a badger guardian at the name day feast. The big empty chair in Great Hall where once sat Abbey Badgers. The sword you are holding belongs to Redwall Abbey. It was once the sword of Martin the Warrior, and it was his face you saw in the blade. Sam Kim shivered and placed a paw across his mouth, 
not knowing why he had spoken such words. He felt slightly foolish as he looked into the badger's dark brown eyes. Mara was mystified, but she did not question the young squirrel. A sense of calm and quiet happiness stole over her as she placed the beautiful sword into his paws. May your sword travel safely back to its abbey, Sam Kim of Redwall. Fucking goosebumps! Yeah, it's like, that's where you're gonna be living, Mara! <laughs> that's your future home! Yeah! And that's it! That's the end of this portion! That's the end of chapter 36! It... good shit! Like, this book is... I sincerely hope as we keep going forward that we're able to say that each book gets better. I don't think we're going to be able to, but I really no. hope so because it, so far, Matameo notwithstanding, each book has gotten better. Mm -hmm. I still think I'm slightly more partial to Mario. I, I think I am more partial to this book. But I think that they're very similar in, like, how well-written they are. Yes, definitely. I think this one reads out loud better. Yeah. Uh, maybe that should be a new barometric for the books <laughs> that we add. How well do you think this book could be read out loud? Uh -huh. I'm adding that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking of the questions, we didn't get any from Tumblr or the Discord this time around, so we're just going to be talking about the default ones. Our we also Abby forgot Coons. to remind people. Uh, yeah. Well, I did warn them at the start of the week, at least. Yeah. Um, let me double check really quick, just to make sure that, like, Skylake didn't put something and we missed yeah. it. But, like, as far as weird Abbey foods go, I definitely want, like, that leek and mushroom paste, uh, pasty. I want to try that. Sounds really good. Yeah, seriously. Uh, we did not get any questions. Okay. It looks like. Uh, beyond uh, Ben offering to make us like literally any food. <laughs> yeah. And he already made like the apple pudding. Yeah, and I'm like, I want it. I want to eat it. And an animal that appeared that surprised you. Did an animal subvert expectations? The deep coiler again. Uh, McPherson. McPherson. Honestly, Earth White too, yeah. to an extent. I wasn't expecting him to be like the gentle giant trope. Yeah, everything leading up was like, this is going to be like the scariest motherfucker. And it's like, nah. This is Andre the Giant. Yeah. Favorite part so far? Honestly, like, the scenery. When, like, Brian just stops to chew the scenery mm -hmm. in this part of the book. Mm -hmm. The the mountains, that green tunnel of trees on the river. The orchard. The way, yeah. And how well do you think this book could be read aloud? Quite well, actually. Mm -hmm. Case in point, have done it multiple times so far. Yeah, with the way Brian like sets up these chapters, it's very easy to like have the start and finish, like the little bit of the cliffhanger or the relief of like things being solved. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm fixing the thing. That's yeah, okay. Thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. This has been Kit. You can find me at Kitsy in a Box on Tumblr, 
and for Affinity. And I also have an inkblot under the same name. I make and sell little adoptical, 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 um, adoptable creatures called Kitsundays, the little dessert themed foxes. And I do regular commissions as well. Yeah. Uh, And I've been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. You can also find me on Hope's Hearth, a Solar Hope Punk actual play podcast. I also take art commissions. Uh, you can also find me on uh, itch.io at shondeer.itch.io, uh, where there are some games that I've written, if you want to get those. All right. You can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit, and do join our Discord. We do like to talk and interact with you guys. Um, Seriously. We've so... got a good community over there, and honestly, it is like one of just my keeps favorite places better. yeah it's one of my favorite places to just kind of hang out um just because like we've got so many like nice and interesting people there and we're working hard to make it more accessible mm-hmm. uh there's some hiccups along the way but that's just because like this is something that a lot of us have never considered doing before so we have to mm-hmm. get used to it and that's on us to get used to so mm-hmm. we're working on it and I think it's a really great place to just kind of come and hang out. Mm-hmm. So, may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.